All right, Rockbridge, I hope everybody is doing great. It is great to be together this weekend, whether you're at any of our six locations throughout Northwest Georgia or in the Tennessee Valley, or you're watching and engaged with us online, digitally, through your computer, your mobile device, in your home, in your car, wherever you're at. Gosh, we're just glad, grateful, and humble that you're with us. We have been in this series that has been so challenging, convicting, encouraging, and exciting, uh, and it's a series called A Better way. We've said, hey, we all have a way of doing things, and, and maybe our way hasn't worked out. Maybe our way of looking at, handling, thinking about, feeling about just hasn't worked out. And so we've opened ourselves up to perhaps a better way, which this question has led us to consider what is the way Jesus would. And then we've just been sort of filling in the blank every week. Well, today we're going to talk about something that everybody has in some form or fashion has encountered, which is marriage. What is the way Jesus would approach marriage? See, and here's the thing. Everyone here uh, has a way that you have practiced marriage, experienced marriage, whether it was in your home or in your current arrangement or your former marriage. We all have a view of marriage. Uh, we all have a way of looking at marriage. Our culture has a way of doing marriage, talking about marriage, valuing marriage, approaching marriage. And so we're just going to come back and say, okay, what is the way that Jesus would approach marriage? And I just want to go ahead real fast before we get into God's Word together and announce this, something we've never done in almost two decades of ministry. We're going to have like our first ever marriage conference <clears throat> early in, uh, the, in the new year, 2022. We're looking at about uh, sometime around that Valentine's Day time in February. So just stand by, kind of save that period of time. Got some great plans. Our discipleship team's been working on, excited about that. Thought we'd go ahead and share that since we are talking about what is the way that Jesus would approach marriage. Now, before we kind of get to Jesus's way, I want us to unpack about three dead-end ways that I think are offered in our society as a way to look, about, look at marriage. Probably all of us, even if we've got a great marriage right now, we've all kind of leaned in one of these directions at some time or another. The first one is this, that getting married is really all about falling in love. <clears throat> and it's falling in love to find ultimate happiness. Therefore, marriage is a right. Therefore, marriage is something that I need, that I'm owed, that I deserve. And a lot of people have this, this stigma that unless you're married, you can't be, if you're single, you can't be fully happy, that marriage is a requirement for that whole happiness thing. Even the Supreme Court, when they redefined like thousands of years of what marriage was designed by God to be, listen to what Justice Kennedy said. He goes, marriage is essential to our most profound hopes and aspirations. Therefore, it's a right for anybody that wants to be married to be able to get married to whomever they want to get married to. Now, we got to unpack this because we see it in movies. We hear it in love songs. A, a lot of us right now, I mean, you're, you're looking forward to your wedding day. A, a lot of us, you know, maybe because you were told marriage was key to your happiness, and then you got married, and you're like, is this it? You know, and so there's so much confusion. But here, here's, the, here's the bottom line. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. It matters what God's Word says. And God's Word is very clear where our joy comes from. Jesus said it this way. He said, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Jesus is the happiest human being ever to have lived, and he never got married, right? 
Maybe he was on to something. No, I'm just kidding. But Jesus' happiness and Jesus' joy is offered to us as his followers. And so to put something, uh, Jesus plus marriage equals happiness. Jesus plus getting married is, is fulfillment and wholeness is adding to the word of God and subtracting from the supremacy and superiority of Jesus. Even Paul, who talked about joy so much, one of his letters, Philippians, all about joy, he said, listen, if you're not married, it's better to stay unmarried, just as I am. And so here's Paul valuing and promoting singleness. And, and let me just say this. Sometimes in the church, we've put a stigma on being single, and, and that's unbiblical, and it's not right. There's a time, there's a place, everybody's going to be single at one point or single again at some point in your life. And, and Scripture values singleness. And so, are we saying single people can't be as happy as married people? No, that, that would violate God's Word. And then Jesus even says, hey, in the new kingdom, he says in the resurrection, when everything's made right, uh, they're asking Jesus, well, whose wife will she be if she married seven times on earth? And Jesus answered and said, you're mistaken. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And Jesus says in the resurrection, we're not going to be given in marriage and we're not going to marry. We'll be like the angels in heaven who just enjoy God. So here's what we need to unpack about this way of looking at marriage. If marriage is the source for happiness and fulfillment. And I'm not saying happiness doesn't come from a great marriage. It does. It's one of the graces and blessings of God. But if it is the solo and penultimate source, then we put undue pressure on ourselves to find the one and get married. And if we don't find the one, then something's wrong, something's missing, and we can make ourselves miserable. And then after we get married to the one, then we put unrealistic expectations on our one to keep us happy. And you, we all know what happens when expectations aren't met, right? We just carry a low-grade frustration, bitterness, resentment, cynicism, anger. Or we go looking for another one. So that, that, that's the problem with dead-end number way, dead-end way number one about looking at marriage. The second dead-end way Staying in marriage, staying married is all about staying in love. Now, to a degree, this is true, but where it comes from is different because what we act like is that love is some kind of condition rather than a commitment. And anybody, anytime a spouse says, "Well, I just don't feel it anymore," I just want to say, "Is not love's not a feeling? Love's a commitment. Love's a choice. Love's a verb." And, but we've been told, hey, if you don't have that love and feeling, something's wrong. If you don't feel it, something's wrong. But that treats love as a condition that you can fall in and fall out of, rather than as a commitment that you make at an altar that says, until death does us part. And the challenge of that view of this wrong way of looking at marriage is it can minimize the reality of sinfulness, strangeness, and differences that inevitably will occur in marriage and then those things threaten its condition because it's a condition without a commitment. And, and anybody who's been married long enough to get past the honeymoon phase, there are times in marriage where what's taking center stage in marriage is not the feeling, it's not the romance, it's not the ooey-gooey, but it's sinfulness, 
strangeness and or differences. And so we need a way of doing and a way of seeing marriage that can overcome sinfulness, strangeness, and differences that will inevitably occur in marriage. And then when you add those two ways up, this brings us to the third way. That's a dead-end way of looking at and approaching marriage. That, hey, divorce is an option. Divorce is an option. And, 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 I, and I'm going to unpack this. I'm going to let Jesus unpack it, really, and talk about divorce. Because I know, you know, there's people here who are going through the pain of divorce, have gone through the pain of divorce. And, and, and certainly, God's Word speaks to that. But I think what my, my point is, is that in our society, in our culture, we just sort of leave divorce out there as a viable option if they're not the one and if I lose that loving feeling. And that's not what Scripture teaches. That's not what Scripture teaches at all. So what we want to do is we want to take those three ways of, of looking at, viewing, approaching marriage, and let's talk about the way Jesus talked about and taught about marriage. Matthew's Gospel, first book of the New Testament, chapter 19. Join with me in your Bibles. Watch me follow along on the screen. So Jesus had finished saying these things, and he departed from Galilee, went to the region of Judea across the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And so some religious people, Pharisees, approached him to test him, and they said, hey, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any ground? So they bring up a marriage question. <coughs> they bring up a divorce question. And, and, and so we're going to lean in to Jesus' words. Now, it's important for us to understand context. At this time in the first century, there were two schools of, rabbini, uh, of thought by the rabbis, two schools of thought. The first one is this. Divorce was only allowable in just rare cases or cases of sexual immorality. So that was one school that rabbis went to and learned about. The second one was divorce could be for any sort of issue or indiscretion. Like literally, uh, if a, and all of these were men divorcing women, never women divorcing men in the first century. But like it, it could be uh, the indiscretion of cooking a bad meal or something. I mean, it was that kind of petty and that kind of crazy. But the, the, the real important thing for us to see is who gets to decide when marriage or is no longer viable or when divorce is the, the solution or divorce is the path forward or divorce is the way forward. Either way we're looking at it, people are deciding it. People are deciding. I mean, the, the, it's like you know, so many of us, it's like, you know, well, it, I just fell in, fell out, you know, had this, had that. And, and we sort of put ourselves in the seat of power. And so they take this to Jesus. And they're like, okay, Jesus, what do you say? And here's what he said. He says, haven't you read? So he goes, he, he takes it away. He goes, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you've been taught. It doesn't matter what way you've come to view, approach, or see marriage. What matters is what God has said, written, preserved, given us in his word. So he says, haven't you read? And he doesn't quote a rabbi. He quotes Moses, first five books of the Bible. He said that he created them in the beginning. He made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, 
let no one or no person or no man separate. So God is the one who puts two together in marriage. Therefore, man can't be the ones who separate or end or terminate marriage. It's grounded in creation. That as much as Genesis 1 and 2 are answering the question of who are we and how did we get here, it's also saying that marriage is essential in the creative creation work of God. And so, the first thing, we just got to step back and say, listen, marriage is God's doing, and it's by God's design. Marriage is fundamentally from God, and it's for God's purposes before it's for our pursuit of happiness. So we have to wrestle with that. We have to submit to that. We have to honor that, that it was God's doing, God's idea, God's thought, God's way, because what God has joined together, we don't just get to move in and out of on a whim. We don't just get to make it our own. It is God's. <coughs> so the Pharisees bring this back. And like, okay, okay, but we asked you a more specific question. We asked you about divorce. So they say, okay, if you want to quote Moses, Jesus, well, why then did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? And, and it is true. In the Mosaic law, there's some allowances for divorce. And so Jesus again, as the master teacher, reveals why this, the, the opportunity or the option, if you want to call it, for divorce is allowed. If it was such grounded in creation, what happened that made divorce allowable? And so Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. That something happened not in God's plan, some, not, not that God's plan was wrong, not that God's intentions in creation were wrong, but something has gone wrong in the human heart such that divorce has to become permissible. He says, but it was not like that from the beginning. In the beginning, there was a perfect plan, perfect marriage, perfect couple. He says, I tell you, though, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then Paul would, using his apostolic authority later on, he would add to sexual immorality what we would call abandonment as biblical reasons for permitting a divorce. But instead of seeing what he's saying, what, instead of saying divorce is an option, the better thing would be to say divorce is a last resort. Okay? Now, this phrase that's insightful to us and points us to how Jesus viewed marriage is this phrase, it was not like that from the beginning. So we go back and say, okay, what was marriage like in the beginning? Marriage in the beginning was this. God took male and female, different. Notice, if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, notice the differences in male and female in creation. They're different in biology, the time of creation, the method, source and, of creation, and their name. So these differences are actually highlighted in Scripture. So despite differences, they're naked and without shame. And the beautiful thing is this, is, is the reason they're without shame is, is for two reasons. Number one, they're perfect, and they've never done anything to cause them to feel shame. The, the second reason they're naked and without shame is they have no fear of the one they're with 
putting shame on them or being a source of shame to them. All right, so that's beautiful, right? It's perfect. And then they're designed to become one, to display God to the ends of the earth. They were created in the image of God. It's not good for man to be alone, so it's incomplete and then incapable of fulfilling that mandate that God gave them, Genesis 1, 26, 27. And so they're designed to become one to show forth who God is as his image bearers to the ends of the earth. And so in the beginning, in, in the beginning, differences in the couple, the first couple, were not an obstacle for love, but rather the occasion for it. That we can have two people, different by design, come together and display God's purposes and love each other horizontally as God loved them vertically in his relationship with them. Now, something happened. Sin happened. Rebellion happened. Which caused Moses to then have to write into the law some permittable reasons for what God had joined together to be terminated. So once the fall happened, once we did it our way, not God's way, what happened? Now we have different male and female, but they're flawed and they're now sinful. So marriage is suddenly dangerous. Marriage is suddenly dangerous because suddenly now I feel shame over what I've done and I'm capable of being shamed because of who I am married to and their capacity to do sinful things to me. So marriage is suddenly now dangerous. This design of God, designed to show forth his glory, has been broken, has been hampered, has been hindered. And so marriage suddenly becomes dangerous. All right? And so <coughs> as Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching, hey, you can't just terminate marriage for any, uh, any reason you want to. The disciples suddenly have an aha moment. And they look at Jesus, and they're like, hey, look, if that is how it is, meaning if we're not supposed, if marriage is supposed to be a permanent, lifelong connection, permanent commitment, except for one or two reasons, then is it better, it's better not to marry. They recognize what Jesus has done is, 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 is created, designed a relationship between a man and a woman. He's created and designed a relationship that is a lot deeper and enduring of a commitment that anybody in the first century really realized. And so like, maybe it's better not to marry. The weight of it has hit them. And then Jesus does something interesting. He says, yeah, because not everybody can accept this te teaching or statement he said, only those whom God helps. So only those whom God helps to see, understand, submit to, surrender to, yield to his purposes, his designs for marriage. And then he even says, hey, some are born without the ability to marry. And that's a biological thing. Some are disabled by men. So in, in, in literal, it would say some are born a eunuch, some are made a eunuch. 
And some refuse to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying something here. He's saying, hey, marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not the end-all, be-all. Marriage is not the goal, not the ambition, nor the source of our happiness. And he says, so let anyone who can accept my state, anyone who can accept my statement, accept my teaching about marriage. And so the question that we have to wrestle with is this. Jesus brings up <coughs> the kingdom of heaven. And so that's in mind when he's teaching on this, this passage on marriage. The kingdom of heaven is in mind. And what, it, what is it that inaugurates and brings us as fallen, broken, flawed, shameful human beings? What is it that brings us into the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's the gospel. It's what Jesus has done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. And so we've got to get back to a redeemed view of marriage. What do we do now that marriage is dangerous? It's dangerous for me to trust someone who can shame me. It's dangerous for me who's capable of hurting the one I'm closest to in, in, the, in the relationship of marriage. So what the gospel does is this. So now there is no condemnation. No shame for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the body we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. That's a lot. But he's basically saying what we could not do for ourselves, God has done for us in Christ. He paid our sin debt. Our, our, the power of sin over us was broken and the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that we experience because of our sinfulness has been eliminated. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so now in Christ, these three things are true. There's no condemnation in Christ due to the substitution of Christ, Jesus in my place. Now I have power from the Holy Spirit. And then I have love from the giving of the Son, that the giving of, Jesus, the, the, the giving of Jesus in my place, that love hits my heart. And all of these facts make me a new creation with a new heart, with new affections, new desires, new goals, new power, new ambition flowing from me. So now in Christ, I am no longer ashamed because Jesus took my shame, and I also have the power not to sin, not to sin against other people, which now gives us a redeemed view of marriage. So suddenly now, in the most intimate human relationship God has created, husband and wife, this command is designed to be lived out. It's a new command. It's really not new. I'll explain. This is in the Old Testament, but it's love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. The new command is Jesus has shown us through his death what true love is. But it's new for us because now in Christ, 
we have the resources to carry out the power to carry out the source of love to carry out the ability to love others as we have been loved by Christ. And so now in redeemed marriage, we can display Jesus's gospel love in human form. So now I am not ashamed. I can be with my wife, not ashamed. She can trust me. I can trust her because the center of us is Jesus and his gospel. She can trust that God's spirit works in me. I can trust God's spirit works in her. I know she's been loved by the love of the gospel. I've been loved by the love of the gospel. And we come together to share that gospel love and to walk together in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we can be together again, naked and and without shame, not because we are perfect, but because Jesus was perfect for us and substituted himself for us on the cross. And that is the redeemed view of marriage. And that was always God's plan. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this. Jesus did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or anything like that, but holy and blameless, naked and without shame. And then he comes back, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So marriage is ultimately designed to display God, his love in human form, horizontally between husband and wife to reflect the vertical love Christ has for the church that he created when he died to create the church. So again, differences are still the occasion for love. They're not an obstacle to it anymore. And so what happens now? When a, when a husband and a wife or a man and a woman come together in marriage, the gospel becomes the engine of the marriage. And we have resources in the gospel that enable us to have a marriage built on a commitment to a death do you part love. Here, here's just resources that we have in the gospel. The world will never give you these resources. The gospel resources are, we're, first, we're rich in humility. There's no self-righteousness that comes from the gospel because of what Jesus has done for us. And we could not do it for ourselves. And humility always positions me to apologize. Humility always positions me to be gracious. Humility always positions me to be a servant. The gospel also means I have been deeply satisfied by Christ in my singleness and in my marriage. So I am not desperate in my singleness and I am not putting undue expectations on my spouse to keep me happy in my marriage because I am deeply satisfied by Christ's love for me. Third, I am great at forgiveness because Christ has forgiven me. If we can't forgive people, the Bible tells us, well, then we need to really ask ourselves, do we understand the cost of what it took for God to forgive us? And I promise you this, I promise you this, whatever your spouse has done to you, 
is nothing in comparison to what we did to a holy God. And Christ has forgiven us. And Christ has died for us. And Christ has died instead of us. So forgiveness, we're great at forgiveness when we are deep in the gospel. And then finally, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes people say, Matt, I can't do that. I can't do that. But God in you can. Christ in you can. The Holy Spirit in you can. We live by his power. And so now we have those resources. So if we're moving forward (coughs) from this and taking Jesus' view, Jesus' way of marriage, here's here's where we can land. First, we got to remind ourselves, marriage is not about me. It's not even about me and Beth predominantly. It's about the plans of God to display his glory and to give his love to the human race. Marriage illustrates that. It's way bigger than me, and it's way beyond me. I can't do marriage without God in me and Christ for me and Christ instead of me. Can't do marriage that way without it. Singleness is part of God's will for our lives at some point in our lives and for some people for all of their earthly lives. And that's okay. And that's good. So we need to embrace it and leverage it for the glory of God. Third, check our source by an examination of our meditation. A lot of times when marriages get stuck, one or both of the spouse, uh, of the, uh, the husband or the wife, is focusing, meditating on something. Usually it's what somebody in marriage did or did not do. And we just, all we think about, we're hung up on it. We can't let it go. We can't get it out of our mind. We can't get it out of our heart. The source for a great marriage is to meditate more on the gospel of what Jesus has done for you than what they did to you. And that a a marriage, a man, a woman who are deeply connected to the source of Jesus' love for them will find ways to overcome hurt, to overcome sin, and to give the love they've been given by Jesus. Check the source of your life, your soul, and your marriage by examining what are you thinking on when it comes to you and your marriage, what's dominating your meditation. Now, I want to be very intensely practical as as we get ready to to close and wrap this up because I I think all good couples, all marriages have fights, all marriages have arguments. And I'm adapting something I got from a church around the Atlanta area to try to give us a real practical resource because a lot of times couples just have an inability to talk about differences or sin issues or challenges in the marriage. And so I, I just want to give us some tools. If we're if all couples fight, not all couples fight fair, not all couples fight well. But if we're going to have a gospel-centered fight, what would it look like? And I'm just going to give just, just and, I, and I hope, I, I kind of prayed and adapted this today using Scripture, using this resource from this church out in the Atlanta area. <coughs> but I just want to give you seven things for a gospel-centered fight. 
Because in my experience, in my own marriage, in my experience in, in talking with couples, we just don't know how to disagree and overcome disagreements. We don't know how to deal with sin in the marriage, and it's always going to be in the marriage because we're two sinners, imperfect, coming together in intimacy. So, man, if we could have a gospel-centered fight, I think we'd have stronger marriages. Here's how I think it could go. First is this. Someone needs in the marriage, husband or wife, doesn't matter, needs to call for a gospel-centered fight. And I think just saying, hey, I need to have a gospel-centered fight, need to have a gospel-centered confrontation, need to have a gospel-centered conversation. I just think putting the word gospel in it suddenly means, man, I got to get above my pettiness. I got to get above it being about me. I got to get above my hurt because God got above his hurt and God got above the differences and God found a way to get right with you and I and it was through the death of his son. So it just elevates it. But to do that, let's apply some wisdom. So wisdom 101 for the gospel-centered fight would be this. First is this, the issue, is it overlookable? I mean, are we re- sometimes couples get hung up on things that don't matter, a hill of beans in light of eternity, and the glory of God is to overlook an offense, Proverbs 19.11. So maybe we don't even need to talk about it. Maybe somebody just needs to say, you know what, I was an idiot. I'm sorry, let's move on. That's it, done, move on. Other wisdom. Okay, now we really need to talk about it. So when is the best time to discuss this? I'll tell you, for Beth and I, it's not before 9 a.m. in the morning, her sake. It's not after 9 p.m. in the evening, my sake. And we both, neither one of us better be hungry because it's just not going to go well. So you just got to pick when's the best time to discuss this. And it's not always when you think it is or he thinks it is, but when's the best time for both of you to discuss this? Has prayer been a part of this? Have we prayed about it? Prayer just slows down the flesh and opens us up to the grace of God. Is the goal of this... This fight, gospel center fight, reconciliation and restoration. Because God went to fight for you and I. He died for you and I. His goal was to be reconciled and restored in a right relationship forever with you and I. And we'll honor, mark this conversation. Honor, not getting hysterical and not getting historical. Honor, I will listen. I will speak kindly. Honor. Is it going to be a part of this? So we apply wisdom 101 and then let's move forward. All right? So someone calls for a gospel-centered fight. Step number two, I would encourage every husband, before the, when, the, when you're ready to have that conversation, read Colossians 3, 12 through 14. So before you get into what she did, what she said, what you heard, what he heard, how you feel, stop. Honey, let's read Colossians 3, 12 through 14. I'll read it now. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, let's be reminded how much we're loved by God. Let's be reminded he loved us when we were sinners. He loved us when we were rebels. Let's be reminded he loved us enough to die for us. So let's put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity or of oneness. So we're just going to read that before we talk. Step three, we're going to give wives, you should have the opportunity to speak first. 
She can defer, but I would let her speak first because sometimes men, we have a tendency to be a little overbearing in these moments. So we dial it back and let her speak first. Husband, when, you, when she is speaking, we practice honor by not interrupting, not defending, but actively listening with our head and with our heart. Husband, with respect and kindness, we repeat what we heard. Wife, you confirm that you have been heard correctly. You have been heard correctly. And then... We're going to repeat steps three and four, but with the roles reversed. Now, the husband shares his issue or his side or his concerns. The wife listens. The wife repeats. The husband confirms. Once that has happened, now we are ready to identify clear solutions and next steps. I think there's four. Some combination, one, two, three, or all four of these will apply. The first one Apologies and forgiveness are asked for and given. We need to go another round, but we're going to pause first for a day, for an hour, whatever, and we're going to pray some more. And then we'll re-engage, and these same rules apply. We've reached a from this point forward moment. The husband and wife, each of us will make an I will commitment. I will not do this anymore. I will start doing this. Each one has to do that. Together, we will make a we will commitment. We will start doing more of. We will stop doing this. We will commitment. Or we may need to get to the point where we say, you know what? We need the help of godly friends, our pastors, or a Christian counselor. We're not sure we can navigate forward, but we will navigate forward with the help of one of the means of grace, which is the people of God, the church of God, and the family of God. And then last, no matter where we are after number six, we will say this, I love you and am committed to loving you as Jesus has loved me. And I think it's important to touch each other physically with some kind of embrace or something else, right? Because our love for one another is not conditioned upon this issue or upon this conversation. Our love for one another is based on the fact that Jesus has loved each of us in his death burial, and resurrection for both of us. That would be a gospel-centered fight. That would drive our marriages with the engine of the gospel. So church, I just want to stop, close in prayer, and ask all of us to be reminded of one thing. God has loved us. God has loved us so that therefore in Christ there is no condemnation over us. And there is the Holy Spirit living in us. And we can walk forward together with that engine driving our lives, defining our marriages, 
and being central in our church. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this conversation through your word on marriage. I'm praying, God, for marriages today just to be strengthened, to be restored. I'm praying, God, that our marriages come to reflect, to display horizontally the vertical love you have for us in the gospel of Jesus in our place and Jesus instead of us and Jesus for us. So, God, thank you for your grace to us today. God, I pray that increasingly the marriages inside of the church reflect more correctly, more accurately, and more passionately the love that you have for each of us and that love that's found only in your son in whose name we pray, amen.